All right, this is Reg Clay and Norman G. And this is the Yay, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay! And uh, it is Friday, October the 20th, and we have a wonderful guest, Tom Riley. Tom Riley, I've known from, uh, we did Candide, we've done uh, Grey Gardens, and we are about to do Civil War Christmas. Tom, how are you doing? I'm fine, Reg. All right. Well, great to have you, and uh, you came at the last minute because we wanted to get a couple of other folks, but, uh, you know, people are busy. People are busy in a good way. You know, they're working on uh, projects and all that sort of stuff, so. I once dated a woman. Yes. And I was, I swear, four minutes late mm-hmm. to pick her up. Mm-hmm. Gone. That was it. That was the end of the relationship. <laughs> we never actually had the date. And I think about that when I think about theater. Four minutes, yeah. <laughs> um, and... I think about that when I think about theater because, like, my birthday That's was right. just over a week ago, mm-hmm. and my wife picked up a gig a couple of days before. Oh, I just picked up a gig. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, seriously? Wow. Let me take a breath. Let me think about this. And okay, okay. I'll, I will survive. But Meaning she couldn't be there for you. Whatever plans you guys had yeah, is the gone. The plans that we had, yeah. yeah, there was no way she was going to do. Yeah. It wasn't even a question. There was no question in this. I have a gig. That was the statement. Yeah. And I realize there's so many relationships that can't handle that. Mm-hmm. There are so many times when if you're not being flexible, if you're mm-hmm. not willing to go, oh, you've got something else. I love it. Again, as a union actor, mm-hmm. you get the, um, the joy of, I had an audition this afternoon. Mm-hmm. You know, I got call- my agent called me for a commercial. <laughs> So you show up to rehearsal an hour and a half late. Yeah, it's your responsibility to let the stage manager know before Mm -hmm. that you're going to be late because you've got an audition. Mm -hmm. And they can't do anything. They have to kind of smile. Oh, okay, that scene we were going to rehearse that is all about you. Mm -hmm. We're going to put that later in the evening because... Yeah. Well, I've told you I've had to go through that with uh, the the musical that I'm doing. You know, I have a couple of actors and they do other things. And, of course, I'm not paying that much. So, you know, one, the lead actress, who is fantastic, Marla Cox, whose birthday is coming up, uh, she's like, hey, I've got a gig, and I'm sorry, that I can't make rehearsal. I'm like, well, okay. And I sort of have to take a breath or whatever, because it's like, hey, you know, we've got run-throughs we have to do, and I've got to time this thing. And, and um, but, you know, you just have to roll with it. Right. Speaking of relationships, Tom, how's your, how's your husband doing? He's, everything's doing great? Well, he's enjoying his life teaching. Yeah. He's teaching high school now after a career as a lawyer. Oh, where? Uh, Albany High. Is he? That's a big school. And that's another thing about you, Tom. You used to be a uh, attorney yourself. I did. Yeah. For a long time. Were you a judge, too? No. Okay. (laughs) Just looks like a judge. (laughs) I've played the judge. Yeah. But, but when it comes to relationships like, uh, let's say, getting a job or a job interfering with, I don't know, affairs or whatever, like I'm sure that you may have, you know, someone may call and say, hey, we need you for a role or whatever. Does that interfere? How, how does that affect the relationships that you have? I mean, does he ever get upset when you're like, hey, I've got, I've got rehearsal? You know, it's unbelievable how, lo- how many hours teachers have to work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, Kevin works uh, 70 hours a week. Yeah. And uh, so... I never feel guilty about leaving the house because he's always working. <laughs> and he, he never gives you any grief, right? No. Oh, good. That's good. So uh, so you told me, I guess, how, how your day, your, your week is going. How's rehearsal with, um, with uh, Hamlet? My rehearsal is all, my week is much about Hamlet mm-hmm. and pulling that together and watching those industrious actors who 
if they're not on book, mm-hmm. they're standing up there without scripts, calling a line. Yeah. I got my line notes, and he kept saying throughout my line notes, on script, on script. <laughs> it was like, we were not supposed to be off book yet. I'm, yes, hey, I'm on book. Brag, brag, brag. But hey, that's, that's what it's all about. The scenes were scenes that we've done once, and this is the second time through, mm-hmm. or scenes that we haven't touched yet. Yeah. Yes, my script is in my hand. Mm-hmm. But the cast is wonderful, and it's funny. This whole notion that this is it's the Arabian Shakespeare Festival, and the idea of the company, the mission of the company is to sort of illuminate the culture of that part of the world. Well, it turns out Hamlet is a huge thing in Arab culture. There are, like, one of the books that we have at rehearsal is four, it's four short plays that are inspired by Hamlet, four short Arabian plays that are inspired by Hamlet. This is a huge thing for them. So, it's funny because what it reduces down to really is the world that we know and the relationships that we know. Um, the biggest thing I'd say that we're bringing into it that I didn't think about in Hamlet is just the sort of political animals that are at each other and what that means. Um, what part are you playing on? I am Polonius mm-hmm. and the Grave Digger and a Pirate and... Oh, I didn't know you had parts. I didn't either until <laughs> last week. <laughs> Does that increase your pay or is it the same? No, see, this is the other side of being a union actor. When you play that one mm-hmm. character who's in one scene, mm-hmm. you still get paid as much as the lead. It's all good. Yeah. But no, they, uh, it's a small cast. We're seven. Okay. And I should make sure I bring in names and cards next time so that I can actually bring yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me, because I remember when we had Radhika Rao on, she also uh, was in Hamlet, and she also played multiple roles, but she also talked about, I guess they focused on multiculturalism and how Hamlet is important in other cultures. Like, she's Indian. Right. And I think there were a couple of scenes where she, they spoke in Indian or, you know, whatever the, um, oh. the Arabic language is, what have you. So, Which, yeah. so that's a theme that's going on. Well, I mean, there's been a Hamlet theme going on throughout the Bay Area this year. I think you're the and fifth production. Um, yeah. I believe Ubuntu is doing one next year. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's big. Yeah. Um, yeah, and again, it really, you know, the reason the play exists as long as it has, mm-hmm. is, is popular and it's successful as long as it's been, is because structurally it's so wonderful. Yeah. And it does allow you to do different takes on it. Yeah. Our there's politics, there's love, there's revenge, there's action, there's comedy. There's family. And yeah. it's so funny because we, the Polonius group, are right. the family. It's me and the Ertes, my son, <laughs> who eventually will kill Hamlet. I'm right. sorry. Spoiler alert. <laughs> It's only been 400 years, right? <laughs> and Ophelia, right. my daughter, who Hamlet maybe loves or loved or yeah. who knows what, but he definitely confuses the hell out of her. Right. Um, and so seeing those moments of family, because we're definitely not seeing it on the Hamlet side. Mm-hmm. You know, he and his mother, there's, there's, a, there's a severe disconnect, from, yeah. If there's a desire for that relationship at the beginning of the play, then that's all you're going to see at the beginning of the play. Mm-hmm. By the time they actually get a scene alone, mm-hmm. a lot has happened, and it's, you know, it's... So we get to represent what it is to be a normal, healthy family. Right, yeah. And what happens to a normal, healthy family when you <coughs> run into a dysfunctional family. Right, of course. And that's why it's, it's endured for so much. Do, have you ever done Hamlet, uh, Tom? No. 
never run out. Never have one, not yet. I have a feeling. Right. Well, that's, and again, it's one of the wonderful things about Shakespeare is it doesn't matter what age you are, there are roles for you. That's exactly right. So current events, um, there hasn't been an awful, I mean, there's been some, but not a lot. Me too. <laughs> well, yes, the Me Too movement. I was going to talk about the uh, 60,000 Puerto Ricans who are pouring into Florida. Oh, good. Because, you know, they can't stay in Puerto Rico. It's good, but, I, you know, it's, I get the feeling that this administration isn't going to do anything extensively for Puerto Rico. But, and, they're, but they're not immigrants. Right. They're Americans. That's exactly right. <laughs> if the administration treats it that way, you know. I'm sure when the president, when, mm-hmm. when Trump met with the president of the Virgin Islands, yeah. and they, they had that meeting yeah. last week or whatever that was. God, yeah, yeah. Tom, Tom rolling his eyes. Well, feel free to speak up, but it's, oh my God. For him to not even know, for the things that come out of his mouth, it's like you met with the, you, you what, you met in the mirror? This is a bathroom meeting? What was this? You, you are the president of the Virgin Islands. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's absolutely horrible. And then we can talk about, you know, uh, Trump and, you know, meeting with the mother of the slain soldier. Calling. Yeah, calling. And, uh, you know, saying, well, you know, he... He, he knew he, he signed up for. Right, he knew he signed up for, right. Your guy. Well, not my guy. I, I, no, no. That's what the president called the, the soldier who died in the, in the line of duty. Told his mother. Allegedly. Yeah. His wife. Was oh, his wife or was his mother? I thought it was his mother. He spoke to the wife. The mother was in the car and listening to the conversation over a speaker. Wow. Wow. And I talked about this on this. I did another podcast earlier today, uh, the Christian podcast that I have with Craig Dickerson. We talked about communication. And we talked about Trump and the fact that, you know, there's some folks, you can't teach empathy. Well, I guess you can. But it has to start at a very, very early age. You know, people can't expect Trump to... He just have to. You just have to give him a script or whatever. Of course, he had the what was the chief, the chief of staff that said, "Well, you know, what the president really meant was this, and it was tough for him to get on that phone. It took courage to do that." Did you hear that statement? I did not hear yeah, that. Yeah, Kelly, I think uh, that's the chief of staff. And oh no! Wait a minute. <laughs> oh, poor Kelly. <laughs> this Kelly's the one who's like, he's like, I don't think Obama called Kelly, and Kelly had to go. Well, uh, yeah, I guess I did mention that. Mm-hmm. But it was inappropriate to bring it up. Right. I mean, Obama, and I, uh, yesterday Obama talked, he was at a rally uh, for the Virginia governor. Right. There's a guy who's running for the Virginia governor. And I almost had tears in my eyes because it was like, wow, I missed this. It's like you never know what you miss until it's gone mm-hmm. and how vacuous the administration is currently when you hear someone speak actually cogently and who cares about people. Vacuous is kind of, you know, you're being polite there. <laughs> Tom, what do you think about all this? I'm, were you surprised when Trump was elected? And, and I, was, I was very surprised that he was elected, and I was quite horrified. Yeah. But a friend of mine who posts something political every single day, I think, mm-hmm. uh, posted a, a, a piece that Robert Reich had. Oh, did yeah. you see this? It was a sort of a dialogue between uh, Reich and a former Republican member of Congress. Mm-hmm. And in it, the member of Congress was quoted as saying, you know, this, this president is out of control and there's all this chaos and we don't know how we're going to take, we don't know what to do about this and this is all. And I just read it and I got angrier and angrier because yeah. I felt like you voted for this person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We knew 
many of us knew what he was going to be like. He's been a television personality for a long time. Exactly. This is his first public service office ever. And yet yeah, he is exactly as he was on the show. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine, when he was elected, said, We've elected a person whose catchphrase is, You're fired? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very sad. Very, very sad. Well, clearly, a bunch of people wanted a bunch of people to get fired. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, the electorate, I mean, uh, what's, what's that line from The Dark Knight? You know, we. Um, they, this is when the criminals had hired the Joker to kill, and they oh. said they 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 invested in someone that they didn't quite understand, or they they yeah they they hired someone that they didn't quite understand. And I think that you know the Republican voters, you know, they brought in someone to sort of say f you to the Democrats, but they didn't quite understand just you know how severe the damage was going to be. It's got to be a hard time to be in the military. I mean, seriously yeah. speaking, it's yeah. got to be hard. It was already hard. Mm-hmm. Because we had a very undefined mission, and that was hard. Yeah. Uh, now we've got an undefined mission, and a man who is taking a new course, and with still mm-hmm. an undefined mission. Yeah. It's got to be a hard time for for them. It really is, and of course they are giving their, their services to the country, and sometimes their lives mm-hmm. to to this country, and uh, they deserve far more respect. Well, that's than what they're getting from the president. That's the one thing about that that I feel like I have not done yet. I have not looked up the man's name, so I think <coughs> our next podcast we should make yeah. sure that we know this man's name. So I believe his last are. name is Williams, but um, I, I, let me let's not guess. <laughs> um, but let's talk about me too. Because that, that's another uh, thing. You know, the Weinstein thing happened. And, of course, we talked about Weinstein last week. And now there's this hashtag Me Too from a bunch of women that says, hey, I also was sexually assaulted or molested or, you know, or, or abused and what, what have you. It's a wonderful thing, but it's also a sad thing that it took something like this to get women to, to speak. I mean, not to say that women shouldn't speak or whatever, but it's a shame that it always takes a, a horrible thing. Yeah. So there yeah. were good reasons for women not to speak up, and it's it's really shocking. I mean, you know, number one, I think we have to recognize that we don't have a woman here to talk, to say anything about yeah, this. So yeah. here we are. So here we are men pontificating on it. Yeah, and that's a shame. And we'll well, as I was watching my feed, Facebook feed, mm-hmm. and yet another friend chime in, and yet another friend, and some other women today, and I'm not surprised that it took them days to chime in. Mm-hmm. These are... Older women, these are, you know, by Bay Area standards, more conservative women. Mm-hmm. By the rest of the country standards, they're totally liberal. Sure, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. But they are not people who are quick to expose their personal lives. Right. And all they said is, me too, nothing else. Mm-hmm. But the day where it was popping up, I was noticing all the women who were just posting the one little, this is why I'm doing this, blah. Yeah. And, you know, like many Facebook posts that start taking over your feet, you know, it's like, okay, does anybody else have anything to say? And then somebody says, well, when I was 11, when I was 8, my boss did, my blah, 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 yeah, blah. And I was like, yeah. oh, actually, now, the next time I see you, I'm not sure what to say, because I don't want to say, oh, that thing about what happened to you at 11, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that your boyfriend, that yeah. guy you didn't know, yeah. that boss, yeah. you know, yes, of course, I am. I'm totally sorry about all those things. You didn't expose that information to me so that we could talk about right. your personal stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's what I ended up posting was, we 
where does the conversation go from here? Because I'm damn sure not going to ask every woman that I know, and that's pretty much my whole list on yeah. Facebook, yeah. about the details of any of that. Mm-hmm. I am going to, and I love, the first thing that I posted was, one woman said, I don't want men jumping on those, me, me too. Right. Um, and I definitely don't want you jumping in if you aren't at least saying that it happened to you. Right. I want to hear, where were you, and what did you do? And as soon as I saw that, the first thing I did was I took it and I reposted that with, I did. And I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Me too. What do we do now? Yeah. I did meaning? Uh, there's no way that I've gotten to this age in life without mm-hmm. at some point pushing a woman, ignoring a woman more, oh, more yeah. often. Yeah. This is the thing guys are copying to the most right. online right yeah. now is... I guess I was in the room when that happened. I guess I heard something like that. I guess sure. I wish there was a situation where I had said something. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's that's the easy route, dude. Did you do it? Yeah. And are you going to admit to the fact that you did it? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And, you know, and then finally I started seeing the list. Yeah. Because what is it that we're talking about? And, you know, the harassment, the, the, the casual, the microaggressions. Yeah. The, um, the work situations, sure. the talking over women. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I work for a law office, the district attorney's office, and actually a couple of women, not because of the Weinstein thing. This is actually a little bit earlier. Actually, during the Trump campaign, I think oh, it was right. after when he talked about His locker know, room conversation. Yeah, the locker room conversation. And I asked a couple of women, you know, in the course of being an attorney, have you had to deal with, um, you know, not sexual harassment, but uh, just being... Um, I guess, domi- I forget what the terminology is, being um, undermined because you're a female. Mm-hmm. And almost all of them say, oh, yeah, it happens all the time. And I've asked older women and younger women. And, um, Tom, you had a story about um, about something that similar. About well, that. I was just saying earlier that, that uh, I think men have a really hard time envisioning the things that women have to put up with on a regular basis. And many years ago, I was standing in an office building after hours, waiting for an elevator, and a woman colleague was standing with me. The elevator came. I stood. I walked into the elevator, and she sort of laughed ruefully and said, no woman would ever do that, walk into an elevator in the evening without making sure who was in it already. Right. Yeah. And, and in that moment, this light bulb goes off in my head, mm-hmm. and I thought, I don't have to worry about that. Right. Yeah. I'm a man. Right. It's, it's right. just amazing the things that mm-hmm. our sisters and mothers and daughters have to uh, think about that we are privileged not to have to. That was the first list that I saw that I loved mm-hmm. as this came up. And I was searching. I was trying to get more information. Yeah. And all I was getting was people repeating or sharing their personal stuff. And I finally hit my first list. And it was a class. And people are now reposting this one. I love it. teacher says she walks into the class. She goes up to the board, and she draws a line down the middle. She puts a male figure on one side. She puts a female figure on the other side. She turns to the class and says, Men, what are the things that you do to avoid sexual harassment? And she said, you know, and it's a beautiful thing. It's paragraphs of it where she says, you know, basically first there's silence. Then typically somebody will make a joke, and there's some chuckling. Then there's more silence. (coughs) Then finally, some guy will say, well, I do this sometimes in this particular situation because I get a little nervous. Mm-hmm. That was about it. 
I said, okay, great. Now that we've gone through that experience of women, what are the things you do? Every hand shot up, and the list on that side of the board just was endless of all the things. And the point was so that these men sitting in that room would go, holy shit, because it's on every side of you. It's everywhere. They do it all the time. And when one points out something, mm-hmm. a bunch more are nodding and going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yes, this is what we need to see. Because some of this I am aware of. But again, yeah, I'm a man, so often I walk through. Mm-hmm. I've even made the conscious decision that in certain places I can walk at night. And I loved, as I got older, mm-hmm. expanding those places. Like, I don't know about you, but I've walked around the lake at night. Mm-hmm. I've walked around the lake with a woman at night. <clears throat> it never occurred to me that she wouldn't do that by herself. I wouldn't do it by myself, not unless I was really trying to get home and that was the way home. Yeah. But if it was, I'd go, I'd be a little worried. Mm-hmm. But that's nothing compared to exactly. what women are thinking about. Or approaching the door and having the keys right in your hand before you go in to make sure, you know, you're not rushed from behind. I mean, there are all sorts of things that we just, just don't think about. And I mentioned off mic that, uh, you know, this whole Weinstein thing, I mean, we could tie Weinstein in with Bill Cosby, with, um, you know, Trump, with the, uh, you know, grabbing her by the, what have you. And there are plenty, and I'm, last week when Michael was on, uh, we, I talked about the CEO who was fired because he had made a sexually, um, you know, horrible comment. And, um, you know, um, and there have been, ser- you know, um, shoot, I'm trying to think, Herman Cain, that's what I was thinking about, who, um, remember Herman Cain, he ran for president, this yes, back yes, in, uh, yes. and then it came out that a bunch of women were like, oh, I was sexually harassed by him, and oh, right. just shot up, and it came out that he was paying all sorts of money to shut them up, you know, the, mm-hmm. the non-disclosure agreement and all that stuff. Right. But it occurs to me, <clears throat> I just don't know. How many fathers, and it's usually the father, to teach the son, how do you talk to women? Mm-hmm. How do you see women as anything other than, you know, tits and tits and ass? Right. Yeah. And look at them as a real human being, you know, just like your mother or right. your grandmother and your sister. Like um, every other human being around. Right, know. right, right, exactly. And I don't think that that happens enough. I remember I was talking to one, I think it was a teacher, and she was like, you know, when they teach children P.E., you know, and sex education, it's all about the anatomy. But they don't need to know about the anatomy. I mean, about, right. you know, what happens. They need to know about how to talk to each other. Yeah. Because men clearly don't know. And there's still this locker room, right. you know, frat boy mentality that still permeates even when the man, you know, is in the workforce. Yeah. And um, all the way up to the highest offices of power. Yeah. 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 That's exactly right. So, well, Tom, Tom's just been very, very quiet. <laughs> let's, let's hear an origin story. Tom, how did you, you know, you've been in the Bay Area for a long, long time, and you've acted, I'm sure you've been an actor for almost 30 years or so, wouldn't you say? 20 years? <laughs> it depends on when you start counting, right? It's longer than that. So what's the beginning? Well, you know, I was, I was, I was, uh, I went to Catholic schools, and the nuns always had pageants and, and shows that, yeah. that we were expected to participate in. Were you an only child, or did you have brothers? Oh, no, sisters? I have three younger sisters. Okay. And uh, I was thinking today, because I knew you were going to ask me this question, <laughs> what was the first actual scripted play I ever did? And it was uh, Life with Father. I was drafted into a production of Life with Father in which 
all of the children have red hair because the father has red hair. Mm. And so my hair was spray-painted red <laughs> for this. Wow. And um, how long, was this like a um, student production or? Yeah, it was, a, it was a great school thing. Oh, okay. Although there were adults involved <coughs> somehow, I don't yeah. remember. So then I did high, uh, theater in high school yeah. and in college. And now, were you born and raised here? No, 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 no. I, I uh, was actually born in Washington, D.C., but I grew up in uh, the suburbs of New York, and then I went to high school and college in New York City. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, I always did theater in high school and in college, but there was no theater program in my college, mm-hmm. which was Fordham College, because in, uh, in an earlier time, there had been a very good theater department there, mm-hmm. and uh, it was shut down after some kind of sex and drinking scandal <laughs> that we were never allowed to know the details <laughs> of. Yes, indeed, indeed. And subsequent to my graduation, Fordham reinstituted a theater program, mm-hmm. and now it's a very, very good one. And Denzel Washington, among other people, oh, wow. uh, trained at the Fordham Theater Program, but not I. So when you got your, uh, I guess, where did you, uh, I would imagine your theater training, I guess, happened on stage, or did you go back to classes? Um, yeah, most of it was uh, was working and learning yeah. at the same time. Uh, when I was in college, the fellow who um, directed the plays was a gentleman named Vaughn Deering, and Vaughn Deering was uh, a fascinating man, uh, one of the old school from one of the old school New York theater families that had been in theater for generations. Mm -hmm. And he was well over 60 when I first met him. In his youth, he had appeared in Broadway plays. Mm -hmm. And um, his one probably most noteworthy achievement was that he was a great friend of Burt Lahr. And when Burt Lahr was offered the part uh, to to appear in Waiting for Godot, he read the script, and he said, I don't know what this is. <laughs> I don't know what this is. I don't understand this. Vaughn, should I, t- should I touch this, or should I run away from it? And Vaughn Deering said, Bert, you need to do that. That will make you immortal. <laughs> and, and in John Lahr's book about his father, Notes on a Cowardly Lion, <laughs> he tells that story. So Vaughn Deering was one of these people who had, had learned theater on the Broadway stage, uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And his approach was, he told you where to stand. He told you how to move. Mm-hmm. He told you your gestures. Right. So you could have a four-part arm gesture mm-hmm. that started with supplication and ended with demand. And he gave you all of this, and then he put you up there and said, do that. Mm-hmm. And you brought the the inner life to the character and filled out what was behind all of this movement and posture and gesturing. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the way we we learned it. Yeah. And I'm sure that your your technique or your way of doing things has evolved since then. Um, did you always feel, um, I, mean, I know when I was a kid, I don't know if I always, always wanted to do theater. I mean, I sort of grew up in the church, and, you know, the church always had these productions and whatever, but I don't know if I really got serious into it until I was in high school. But what about you? I mean, did you always feel that you wanted to be on stage? I guess I did. Yeah. 
because people were always saying to me, why don't you come and be in this production and that production and the other production? Yeah. What brought you to the Bay? Well, um... Because I know you had a career in law. Yeah. 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 Well, I was living in New York City in the early 1970s, and New York City was going down the toilet. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I remember the 44 Cowboy Killer, and there were all sorts of stuff, and blackouts. It was a very bad time. Four to New York dropped in. Times get worse. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I had never been west of the Allegheny Mountains, mm-hmm. but I knew some friends who were going to New Mexico to work in a theater company, and they said, why don't you come with us? Mm-hmm. So I joined a caravan of young people, and we went to New Mexico. So the first time I ever went east of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. I drove from New York to New Mexico and started working in a theater company in the mountains of the the Sagrada de Cristo Mountains in New Mexico. Wow. And it was a beautiful theater. Um, the story was that in this little tiny town called Raton, uh, sometime in the 1920s, I guess, they wanted to build a new city hall. Mm-hmm. And someone said, well, of course, if you build a city hall, you have to put a theater in it, because any town that's civilized has right. to have a theater. Right. So they built this beautiful little gem of a theater mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico, and then they started trying to get people to come and produce things in it. And uh, sometimes when, when we had nothing else to do, we would play with the scenic drops, that mm-hmm. the old scenic drops that were mounted in the stage, and you could see the names of like people like Phil Silvers, mm-hmm. vaudeville performers who had, who had played in this theater. Wow. In Rich past. history, huh? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So I did that summer stock there for four seasons, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the winter, we did a very weird thing. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of assembly shows? No. This is a phenomenon which probably doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. But in the Midwest, in the 70s at least, um, there were these ho- uh, management houses in Chicago that produced shows for the purpose of entertaining and educating students in high schools. And then they marketed them to the public schools all over the country. Mm-hmm. And so little companies of actors, often two, two actors, mm-hmm. would show up at a school at 10 o'clock in the morning and do a show uh, on a theme of American poetry mm-hmm. or the Lincoln-Douglas debates or mm-hmm. something like that. Awesome, awesome. And uh, so I did that. Mm-hmm. In the in the winter times when we weren't performing in Summerstock, we did mm-hmm. the assembly shows. Yeah. And they were a very interesting learning experience mm-hmm. because you would often do two and sometimes three shows a day right. to a room from 200 to 1,000 students. Mm-hmm. And they weren't necessarily very interested in what you're doing. So your job was to keep them quiet for a few hours. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We've had several guests. There's an interesting connection between theater and education. Like, you know, you work with Each One Reach One for a while now. Yeah. And uh, I know Ronica Rao <coughs> and a bunch of other folks that we've had on. What do you think the connection is? I, I know it's an abstract question between education and theater. 
I mean, maybe theater is kind of like this way, too. I, I sort of think it's, honestly, I sort of think it's a bunch of English teachers who've gotten terrified at the idea of trying to, to touch mm-hmm. plays. Yeah. And, you know, enterprising theater people have said, oh, we'll just bring a show in for you. How about that? Yeah. Because the amount of money that they typically spend on those sorts of things, I'm like, you could have just read this with your class, and if you did that well, that would actually be way more educational experience than you putting us up on stage in front of them. Because a lot of times they don't care, don't know, and they're not ready for it. And you spend, I, I've done I've done school tours where my subtext the whole time was, shut the fuck up. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, I'm doing Shakespeare, but in my brain I'm thinking, just shut up and I can finish my speech. <clears throat> yeah. And, and the funny thing is that that works. Mm-hmm. You know, you get up there and they go quiet because you were so intense. Mm-hmm. But my intensity has nothing to do with the text. It has <laughs> right. nothing to do with any style yeah. of theater I've ever been taught. Mm-hmm. It is totally just, let me finish my speech so that I can get off stage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, so I wasn't, I mean... Junior high school was really rough. Uh, the high school that I, the junior high school that I went to, Robo Junior High School, which is closed down, and our English teachers were really—I mean, they were like, you know, open your textbooks to you know page whatever, whatever, and I, none of us could care less about what we were reading. But then we had one teacher, a guy named Lorenzo Calendar, <clears throat> and if he's on Facebook, I'm gonna you know you know connect to him. And um, but in any case, he called himself a griot. Um, oh like an African shot, a storyteller. Yeah. And he had to sort of, uh, he was, he did teaching, but it's clear that he also did acting as well on the side. Right. And he brought this energy to us when, you know, as he taught our class, the ninth grade class. And I remember uh, he was like, hey, you know, I want you to act out a scene from a book. Mm-hmm. And it was Jack London. It's ironic that we're on Jack London Square. You know, right. I, I did Jack London's uh, To Build a Fire. Mm-hmm. I was so fascinated about this guy who's in the Yukon trying to start a fire, but he doesn't understand the elements of, of, the, of the cold in right. nature. Right. And, of course, he freezes to death because, oh, he, wow. you know, yeah. Do you, you don't know the story? It's a, fa- it's a wonderful short story, mm-hmm. I think told in 1905. So, you know, of course, I'm doing this. I had tape recorded myself. I'm like, I must have been 13 years old. I'm tape recording myself doing this, and I'm playing the tape while I'm acting it out, and there's this, you know, pretend dog looking at me, freezing to death, and I was like, <laughs> and, uh, but I had fun doing it, and it was a great way as a student. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a teacher who's, who's made me energetic about learning about right. a book. Right. So, my, the theater's wonderful that way. My mother, I'm sure to this day, <laughs> remembers poems, because they did oratory. They mm-hmm. had to get up in class and read out loud. When I go... I actually love doing regular classes and reaching out to non-theater people as a teacher. I think it's easier than going to theater people because theater people, it's like, here's a scene. Get up and do it. Yeah. But when you're in a class, you can discuss it and you can do all that stuff. And you can make it not about the acting side of it. But what's fun is you see how people pull into it. So I've done it in Oakland High. I spent like four years in residence at Oakland High doing Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And I would walk in and just ask the whole class to do a little read as we went through a scene. Or actually even some of my support material. I'd make them read the support material, just like read it out loud. <coughs> They're all looking, mm-hmm. or most of them are, at the material. There are hard words. Somebody stumbles over one. Well, mm-hmm. it's the bright kid in class. 
wow, everybody's like, wow, even he stumbled over. I was like, yeah, actors stumble over words all the time. It's no big deal. But when it's a kid, nobody has high expectations of it. He actually gets it or gets close to it. And I go, don't even worry about that. Actors do that all the time. Everybody, this is a hard word, right? right. This is a, this, this mm-hmm. is a, it's an archaic word. You don't even know this word. Right. Um, just sound it out. Do your best. That's what actors do. Yeah. And you did great. Let's keep going. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of lowers the, the stress level in the room. Mm-hmm. By the time we get through it, they all walk out feeling like they just did Shakespeare. I had a kid. I had a kid get out of juvie mm-hmm. and stop me on the street to say, do you remember me? I was the prince. I was the prince. <laughs> awesome. And I'm like, okay, you were like announcing to the world, A, that you were a juvie, but B, that you did Shakespeare. You are with your buddies. Yeah. This is here in Oakland. Yeah. You were with your, you're with your buddies. No, yeah. no, no, I was a prince. I was a prince. I'm like, <laughs> yay. And that's something that when I was in school, mm-hmm. teachers were doing, English teachers were doing. Mm-hmm. They don't do that anymore, so instead they bring people like me, actors, in to do sure. these presentations. Yeah. And I'm like, I think the school would do better to spend that money on getting that teacher comfortable with getting up in front of the class yeah. and getting the class to do it. Because that's all I do. Yeah, but, you know, some, some teachers are just not built for that. I mean, I wonder why some teachers are teachers, and, uh, you know, if they're not built for it, it's a great way to make money, you know, as, as an actor. So well, it, yeah, yeah. It, it was the first steady paycheck I had, so. So back to the Tom Riley story. So you're in New Mexico. Uh, was it a conservatory theater? Was it a region? Was it? A, were you a part of a? This was a group that you. It was called the Kaleidoscope Players, mm-hmm. and um, it was designated as the State Theater of New Mexico. Wow! <laughs> as if there were a lot of other theaters in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it was run by a guy, a crazy character named Bill Fegan, who had just. Showed up there with some touring company of actors once, and um, the town said, we've got this beautiful theater. Do you want to take a residence and be our resident theater company? So we did. So, yeah, so I was there for several years, and then I, and then I came to the Bay Area, um, probably because I had grown up as a gay boy in New York City and just somehow thought San Francisco is where I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just kept moving west until I got here. It was happening. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So then I, sh- I was in San Francisco for, I mean, not in San Francisco, in the East Bay for uh, a while doing community theater and after, and working in various jobs. Yeah. Ultimately, the Social Security Administration for a few years. And then I thought, I'm not getting very far as an actor, and I'm certainly not getting very far as a bureaucrat in the Social Security Administration. Maybe I'd better go to law school. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. Oh, wow. And so then I took a 25-year break from theater. Oh, wow. And when I started looking toward retirement, I thought, maybe I have to go back to that. Yeah. That, that, was, that was a rewarding thing to be doing. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do the math. I think that you came to the Bay Area. It sounds like it was in the 80s. Well, no, it was, 80s. It was the first time was 71. Ah. And then uh, in and out of the Bay Area. So until about Polk Street days. Yeah. I moved to the Bay just as people who knew knew about that, but everybody was talking about the Castro. And I would land in, over near Polk Street, and I'm like, wait a minute, there's, there's a whole lot of gay going on here. Nobody's talking about this. Mm-hmm. That's knew, knew, but, but I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of a lot of growth. You've seen a lot of the history of Bay Area theater, like, you know, we've talked about ACT, how that's grown, or uh, the new conservatory theater. 
um, I think you and I were in the car. Yeah, you were driving me home from uh, one of our rehearsals, and you were talking about the evolution. I think it was the New Conservatory Theater. Was that it? Well, I was. Uh, I don't remember that. We were talking about the Berkeley Rep. That's what it was. Yeah. When I when I first came to the Bay Area, Berkeley Rep was located on College Avenue, very close to the Elmwood Theater, mm-hmm. in a very tiny little storefront theater. And it really was a true repertory company mm-hmm. with, I don't know, maybe 20 actors. And they took whatever role they needed to take and they put on the next show. I loved going to those shows because you could see a different, the same actor doing a completely different role in one show after another. Yeah. I've talked to a few people who remember that era. Oh, it sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah. Are you surprised that, because uh, we were talking about the um, the Berkeley Rep, how it became, you know, such a small thing, and now it's sort of at, on the same level as, I don't know, ACT, or, you know, they, they do the big shows, well, they hire regional. out the actors. It's huh? regional, it's, it's yeah. one of the big houses, mm-hmm. in, you know, in our area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think that's a good thing for them, but all, but it's, it's, you know, uh, we were talking about how they don't hire local actors anymore, you know, they sort of get the big, the big shots. And um, how sad that is because uh, it used to be a place where you can go in and sort of build up your name if you are a young actor, and it's not there anymore. What do you think of the state of theater now? I mean, um, we've talked about in other podcasts how um, there are a lot of theater companies that have gone down that used to be around. Like, I, you know, it was EastEnders for, I was a part of EastEnders, and that, that you know, went under. And uh, there have been a bunch of others, and... Um, Especially in the day and age of the internet, it's hard to get people into the seats. But um, but there seem to be more theater companies today than there have ever been. I mean, every time you turn around, there's a new one. I'm very impressed with the new theater companies and how many have been starting up. Yeah. So there's there's an audience. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And there's still you know new energy. I mean, you know, there are people who still have ideas and uh, they want to they want to do it. Um, are you are there are there any theater companies as of right now that you are really impressed with that that are you um, that you enjoy working with? <laughs> well, I'm impressed with the Town Hall Theater and what Susan Evans is doing out there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, she was formerly with the DMT, and you know, Susan uh, talked a little bit about um, well, uh, you know how DMT used to be, you know, a theater company, and uh, no one really knows what's happening at the DMT now. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. I think they become more of a uh, sort of a um, what's the word? I think they just ran like out their space. Yeah, a rental yeah. house. Um, yeah, and it's such a center. That's the term yeah. I'm looking for. They become that. Such an extraordinary facility. It's it's a shame. Well, that town hall building is like over a century old, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, so it has a lot of rich, rich history. And uh, they were saying that we have to, you know, leave out of the house to get to the um, outside to get to the um, the green room. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? <laughs> so one of the first questions I was like was like, you know, will we be able to hear when our cue is? And she was like, well, there's an intercom system, but you probably want to be close to the stage if you're... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the New Conservatory Theater you mentioned is also a very interesting company. I think they just celebrated their 25th anniversary. At least, I would guess. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Ed Decker has done marvelous things there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's got, like, relationships with people, so there's a, they've done at least one or two Terrence McNally premieres, haven't they? Or West Coast premieres, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, that's that's kind of impressive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny, because I love, I'm, I'm definitely biased towards regional 
But um, if you have a connection to Back East, a legitimate connection to Back East, and they're coming out here to be with us as opposed to us waiting for one of their shows that we can get, I, I feel like that's a lot more dynamic. Mm-hmm. I would hope it's more dynamic for him. Maybe he's, well, I would assume it is. He's, they've done a number of the shows, and I'm pretty sure there's been at least a couple that were world premieres. Mm-hmm. I mean, not world premieres, um, West Coast, West Coast premieres. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's um, creating that sort of network, that community, that professional community, artistic community, that is, I'd love to see more of a barrier there. Mm-hmm. Tommy, have you thought about doing um, equity? I mean, have you, has that ever crossed your mind? Or are you comfortable doing you know, what you're doing? I got an email last week inviting me to join Actors' Equity. And I really don't know why. Because oh, there's a big controversy right now, but go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, I have done, I've understudied a couple of times mm-hmm. and gotten points. Mm-hmm. So I'm on some That's list fine. somewhere. Yeah, 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 equity membership candidacy. Right. So if you, for those people who may not know this, if you uh, work in an equity house, you can accrue points toward becoming a member of mm-hmm. Actors' Equity. And when you accrue a certain number of points, you become eligible. Right. I don't know what that number is, but I don't have it. It's um, well, it was fifty weeks, and they just dropped it down to twenty-five weeks. Mm. And people like you who are already in the system, they're letting you know. They're reaching out to you to say, if you get your twenty-five weeks, or if you have more than twenty-five weeks <coughs> before January, because they're about to raise the other uh, the initiation fee. So if you get in before then, you can go at the old fee. Mm-hmm. So you're a member. I'm a member. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm a member, and, and it's so bizarre being. I was an equity member candidate, and I actually I skipped a summer. I did a whole summer show where I I did not talk. About, I didn't tell anybody, and they didn't know, and I didn't get any points because I was doing almost nothing. And I'm like, you're not going to bounce me into equity because. And this is what the controversy is. People are upset that they're reaching out and saying they're trying to get all these new people in. Equity, I think, reasonably is saying, you already are in the system. We're about to change the system. We want to let you know that before the system changes, you might be able to take advantage of this moment. So you should. And I think that's fair. But, you know, the flip side is that you get 50 weeks. The, the assumption is if you had 50 weeks of experience that you've got enough experience to be a professional actor. And that's reasonable, but I wasn't going to give up. It was like something like 20 weeks, 13 weeks. You know, it was in insane a number that was going to push me, if not over, push me to the edge. Because once you get to that, then you can't do any more shows. Right. I mean, that's, that's the reason why I would not join. Um, I'm a big believer in unions, and I'm very sad that the population of, of unions is dropping. Uh, so I, I love the idea of a union for actors, but from my point of view, mm-hmm. I am not acting to be paid, and I don't really expect to be paid, and therefore I don't need to be in a union. But there is this weird thing in the Bay Area where I don't want to be taking a job away from a person who is a member of the union. Mm-hmm. doesn't happen very often. Oh, it does, though. Yeah. It honestly does. Yeah. And, and that's, I think it's completely reasonable. I doubt if you would even know. I mean, if you right. were offered a job, 
there's no way that you would know that someone who has equity contacted Susan and say, hey, you know, can I have this job? Oh, I'm sorry, Tom Riley has it. Um, well, the, even in the listings, the listings will, and it's funny because I'm actually deeming the companies that are just going non-union. If they don't put it in their listing, that's the first thing I do is I send them a little message, hey, what about equity? Mm-hmm. And they write back, you know, sorry, no. And I'm like, okay, not happy about that, but when you put it out there up front, then I know. Mm-hmm. And that means that you are going to be considered for the job, and I'm not going to be considered for the job. That's See, that was, a, that was one of the things you were asking about, Reg. Um, what state of theater when I arrived here? Yeah. When I got here, there were like three professional theater companies. There was Berkeley Rep, there was ACT, and I think there was a company down in Los Gatos. Oh. And everybody else was stage. Everybody else was community theater. Mm-hmm. So if you were equity, you worked in the professional theaters. Right. If you weren't, you worked in the community theaters. Mm-hmm. But now there's so much more... Terrain. <laughs> well, I was going to say confusion. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's confusion or... But all of the equity waiver houses and the yeah. companies where they have a couple of equity yeah. actors right. and, and everybody else isn't. And there's a whole system of tiers. So. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, the big houses are required to have, like, I don't know that ACT can have a non-equity person on their stage unless it's somebody from the school. Mm-hmm. That used to be the way it is. I don't know if it's still that way. But if you look at the smaller companies, I don't know. Theirs is a requirement that they have a minimum of so many actors and stage manager mm-hmm. that are union. Here's an odd question. Do you think there are too many theater companies here? Do you think there's just too much? There's a glut, I guess. Um, I mean, maybe there's enough companies and there's enough shows and there's enough actors and there's enough audience members for everybody. But it sounds like everyone is competing for, you know, the same either grants or audience members or even equity actors. That's a question for both of you guys. <laughs> well, if the theaters can fill the houses, then there aren't too many theaters, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I, it's funny because my my if I had to answer yes or no, I would say yes. Mm-hmm. There are too many. Yeah. Um, but I would equivalent it, of course, because I don't think there are too many. What I'm always surprised at is the next group of people, it's usually actors, mm-hmm. who decide that they're going to start a company so they can do the show that they've been wanting to do. Sure. Mm-hmm. And if they do that show, and this happens all the time, they do that show and that's it, they're done. Great. Yay. Yay for you. It's the companies, and this we've talked about this before with the union, people get all terrified about the way the union is, the union rules, the regulations, the, the standards that mm-hmm. the union tries to maintain. And the paperwork. People get all nervous about this. But in many ways, the union is trying to open the door to the possibility of these things happening. Mm-hmm. So that's not really the issue. It's The issue is twofold. Those companies that go a few seasons. So that little group of plucky actors is now in season three or season four. Mm-hmm. And they're all building the sets and painting it and bringing their clothes from home and doing that. And the union says, no, you can't do any of that. And they go, wow, well, we can't work at the level we're working at. And everybody wants to complain about the money that it costs. But there are plenty, shouldn't say plenty, there are a fair amount of little companies that are making money. Mm-hmm. Because everybody's bounding together and doing that work that needs to be done for next to nothing. 
and they're filling the houses. They're doing a good job of getting the word out to the communities that are interested in their stuff, Mm -hmm. and they're filling their houses. So they're making money. And this is where those companies run into problems with the union. The union says, well, what's your budget? And then the union looks at your budget and says, oh, no, you're making plenty of money. You need to be giving more money to the actors. Now, if you take another company like, I'll say Central Works, since I love I love Central Works, and I've watched their growth. Yeah. Um, and Central Works is now a union house. Mm-hmm. They have to have, they have to have so many. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know exactly how it's set up. I don't think it's per show, but they have to have equity actors. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, their overhead, they are really, the money that's coming in is going into the shows. It really is. And they can show you on paper. It's really easy to see. Mm-hmm. But they used to be for years under a BAP, Bay Area Policy, Bay Area Production Policy. Mm-hmm. And that was not a contract. That was just an agreement that the union said, you can go do that show. It's not a job. Mm-hmm. So the union was sort of bowing out on that side. Mm-hmm. But you're asking the producer to maintain those standards, you know, keep decent hours, keep a safe space. You know, pretty pretty basic stuff. Um, but the BAP required you to pay the union actor as much as the highest paid person in the production. It still does. Um, which means if nobody's getting paid, then you don't have to pay the, you can pay the equity actor a dollar mm-hmm. and they're going to pay more than the highest paid person. But there was a limit on how many BAPs you could do. And people fight against this all the time. And it, depending on your interpretation of the agreement, you could do the way the union wants to see it is you could do six shows in three years. Mm-hmm. You're limited to no more than two shows a year for three years maximum. And at that point, the union says, no, we want you to bounce up to another contract. But when you're that little company and you only want to do, say, two shows a year, mm-hmm. and that's all you want to do, you never want to be bigger than that, Maybe you do a holiday show and you do a summer show and that's all you do and that's all you ever intend to do and you're never going to be bigger than that. And you don't make that much money on it. For the union to come to you after three years and go, well, wait a minute, you've been doing this for a while. We need you to bump up. There are a lot of companies that are in that situation where they sort of fall through the cracks. So that little group of plucky actors that I first talked about, Mm -hmm. when they get to season three, season four, I have less sympathy for them when they want to say, well, we want to do it our way. Well, are you calling yourself a professional theater company? Because you want to use union actors. So on some level, you said you're a professional theater company. Professional theater... But, you, but they don't want to pay. You need to step it up. You right. need to figure out how to do right. it. If you don't want to do that... Now, yeah. see, I'm one that argues, and I'm in the minority of people I talk to in the union... I want that little company to go ahead and do whatever they want forever. Because as a union actor, mm-hmm. maybe there's a role that I really want. Maybe they actually pay. Like, let's say they pay seventeen hundred mm-hmm. for me to do for the lead actors in their show, especially if they're using union. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get seventeen hundred. I'm going to get to do the role of a lifetime in this house that has a steady audience. I know the place. Why shouldn't I do it? Why should the union care? And the union wants to start jacking them up about whether or not they use me. I'm like, they keep good hours. It's a safe space. Mm-hmm. They do good theater. They bring in an audience. They are, they are, you know, so like the new conservatory keeps dancing around becoming a union. And they don't want to be a union house, but they keep occasionally bringing the union actors. They're avoiding it like the play. 
they are making tons of money. Um, yeah, I don't have any sympathy for them. Well, I do have sympathy for them. They do good theater. Yeah. For the, for the community that they're reaching out to, mm-hmm. you know, that, that message that they're trying to put out in the world, one, it's not being put out there enough. There's just not enough. Yeah. There's not enough gay theater. That's a weird thing. But there's not that representation happening. Yeah. Um, so in the same way that the Lorraine Hansberry got a sort of, you know, the Lorraine Hansberry for years was able to sort of push the boundaries mm-hmm. because they were the only black theater in town. So the union and the reviewers and everybody kind of had to say, well, we need to put that in a special case. I think the same thing is true. New conservatory theater, I don't care that they are financially successful. Mm-hmm. They still need to be given some respect for the fact that they are taking a chance on something that nobody else is doing on a regular basis. Yes, you'll see a gay show here and a gay show there every now and then, but there's a gay show at this other theater company this year. Mm-hmm. There may not be one next year. Yeah, and maybe I should say, if, if they, because, you know, obviously a company has to, you know, if they, if they have the money, they should bring in equity actors if they can but also have room for non-equity actors. I mean, I, I hate to, you know, like the same complaint you have for little regional companies that won't hire you because they don't want to have the equity contract. I have a problem with, let's say, New Conservatory or ACT or whatever because it's only equity or well, the big it's stars. Well, New Conservatory, but ACT, ACT, magic. Where they want the top dog sure. or someone's going to bring in the money. And let's say I'm just, you know, I'm, I just, I'm a, you know. I'm a local guy. Right, a local guy. So I can't. Uh, get that in. So I see a need for both. I see a need for a company that can bring in enough revenue to employ the equity actor, but also make room for the local actor to come in. Well, I want to respect mm-hmm. non-equity actors. Okay. I, there are plenty of non-equity actors who have more years on stage than I do. Mm-hmm. So I'm not... How, how can I, can, I can't compete with that guy. <laughs> sure. You know? I can't be who that person is. So mm-hmm. that actor brings their skill set, and it's not about being in the union. There are plenty of union actors who just don't have the, they don't have the chops, they don't have the years, mm-hmm. they don't have the whatever. Yeah. I, I think it's a mistake to put those things in competition. I hate those houses that don't want to let you in the door, but believe me, if you can't get in the door, there's a good chance that I have trouble getting in the door. Right. Yeah, I hear you. So, I hear you. you know, the union houses, the, the exclusively union houses, even local actors mm-hmm. have to scramble to try and get in, the yeah. local union actors. Mm-hmm. So, let's, let's bring Tom in. Uh, how, how many shows do you do a year, uh, average, Tom? Maybe one a year, two, two a year? Mm, probably three. Three? Yeah. Lately. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think you've been in demand. You've, you've done uh, quite a bit. What was, the, what was the last show that you were in? I know that. Um... I did a production of The Miser with Curtain Theater up in the Little Valley this past summer. Nice. Yeah. That's a nice little group Moliere? of people. Is that Moliere? Moliere. Yeah, yeah. but who's the Curtain Theater? Oh, it's a group of, I think it was primarily musicians who started it, mm-hmm. um, oddly enough. But they've been producing Shakespeare outdoors in Mill Valley in the summer oh, nice. for 18 years. Mm-hmm. And they typically, they typically um, bring their own sensitivity to it and, and compose music. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of music in the productions and there's always a band, a live band. Nice. And it's, uh, it's, it's very sweet. Um, and the fact that it's outdoors is, is fun. But I'll tell you, this summer, 
we had a product, we had a performance on a Labor Day weekend, and it was like 106 degrees, <laughs> and we were wearing these 18th century costumes with lots of layers. It was a very, very funny to be backstage because you'd see the actors come off stage and start tearing off their clothes <laughs> right. and putting ice packs all over their bodies. And then yeah. You, now you played a, uh, I think you played a serial killer uh, recently, or or a killer. We were talking about this at the Civil War. Rehearsal. I have played killers several times. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was, what was the very last time? There was some production that uh, you were in with, with one of our with someone that we were rehearsing with. Oh, yeah, Kari, Kari Loy. Um, oh. Yeah. Have you worked with Kari? Barely. Our paths have barely crossed. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, we did Laura together, the uh, stated version of the wonderful film noir mm-hmm. uh, with Gene Kearney. And so Kari played the good guy, the detective, and I played the uh, insane psycho killer. <laughs> Which I have a hard time picturing you as, but Clifton Webb did it in the film. <laughs> if you've seen the film, you would not have a terribly hard time picturing me doing that part. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. We've hit the one hour mark, so shout outs. Uh, well, I did my homework <laughs> for birthday stuff. Should I do birthday? I want to acknowledge you. And her birthday's today. Jeremy Sawyer, who I acted with in The Marriage of Benton Boo, um, years, years ago, to his birthday's today. Susanna Yu, uh, another one of the uh, former, she was a former member of um, Bendelstiff. Her birthday's today. She actually lives in New York. She got married and has uh, two kids. Corey McKenzie, who is the twin sister of Ty McKenzie, who is um, the, the, um, 
I think the production stage manager, she's the house manager for um, the Phoenix Theater with Linda S. Frederick, and also she um, was the house manager for um, Dark Room before that closed down. Um, so Corey McKenzie, I was, and their twin sisters, I imagine both their birthdays are today, but I only saw Corey's. And of course, Alan Q. Alan Q's uh, birthday is today. Right. Alan Kismorio. Um, Isaiah Dufort, his birthday is tomorrow. He was a former member of EastEnders. He was more of a writer. Also, Jessica Coker Moore, uh, a fabulous singer who I acted with uh, in Bat Boy uh, at the uh, Ray of Light Theater. Her birthday is uh, the 22nd. Also, a former uh, Duke Ellingtonite, Shantice Rodriguez, formerly Shantice Warren, a fabulous dancer, and I think she also acted as well. Uh, and one of my actresses, Marla Cox. Her birthday will be on the 26th. And she's a fabulous singer. Um, she's actually performing. Uh, hold on for a second, because I just bought tickets for it. Da, 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 da. Let me go. Here it is. The Marsh. She's acting at The Marsh on Monday night. Who is this doing what? Uh, the Marsh Theater, which is like on a 16th. It's, it's yeah, it's a Valencia, it's yeah. Part of that, like 20th. They're doing a bunch of stuff now. The production she's doing, as a matter of fact, I have a card right here. Hold on for a second. You go ahead, well, John. Uh, so other birthdays uh, coming up this week. Jennifer LeBlanc, uh, Jessica, Jessica Richards, Cliff Mayotte. Um, wonderful director that I worked with. Thomas Simpson, and I'll get to more of the shout-outs with um, him because he does Afro Solo. He's the founder of Afro Solo, and they've got a solo festival coming up this weekend. Nice. Uh, Luana Stewart is a stage manager that I worked with. Darren A.C. Carano is one of the producers of 42nd Street Moon now. Ah, His okay. birthday's coming up this week. Yeah. Uh, Richard Side, who... I don't know how you could be in Bay Area Theater and not know who Richard Side is. He's an acting teacher. Um, used to direct more shows, but I don't hear about him directing anymore. But he's at Emily Austin, um, Andy Trindle. Uh, do you know that? Ian Walker um, and Andy Trindle started Second Wind Productions. Okay. I bet if I saw his face, I know him. Uh, she. Sheen, sorry, anyway, sorry. Um, and uh, that's that's it for this week. Ooh, we got some good ones coming up yeah. this week too. So uh, Marla Cox, she along with being in my show, she's uh, doing. Um, so the Marsh is doing a short program of selected songs and scenes. One of them is "Call Me Tanya: The Unauthorized Occupation of Patty Hearst. and it's only two Mondays: Monday the twenty-third and Monday the thirtieth at the Marsh Theater, 1062 Valencia Street. So that's what, and I'll be going to that uh, this, this coming Monday. But you have the night off, huh? Yeah, I do have the night off. So I figured I'd go ahead and actually see, you know, and support some of my, um, some of my um, co, uh, you know, co-actors. Go ahead. Thomas Simpson, I was saying, uh, Afro Solo Theater Company, they do what they call the Black Voices Series. This has been going on for 23 years um, it started off as, Afro Solo started off as just solo performance. It has mm-hmm. expanded to be a whole thing. There's um, there's a jazz concert at Yerba Buena Gardens. There's all this other stuff. But the core of it, the original thing, was this Black Voices series. Mm-hmm. And that's this weekend. So um, that is, it says, the 19th through the 22nd. Wow. Yeah. And uh, let's see. I've done a lot of these last week. I'll try to. The newest one that I have, Angel Street by the Role Players Ensemble. That opens tonight through November the 5th at the Village Theater at 233 Front Street. Alan Coyne, 
is in that. Right. <laughs> uh, and I'll have the uh, um, a link on that, or Earl on that. Uh, also, uh, I've talked about this before, the Further Adventures of Haley Gobbler, Dragon Productions, that'll be, that's already opened, um, no, I'm sorry, that's opening on the 26th, and it'll run through November the 19th, directed by Dale Albright, who we've had on the show. Welga is uh, closing tomorrow, so if you haven't seen Welga, um, you know, check that out Saturday. Is that Bendelstiff? That's Bendelstiff, directed by Conrad, Conrad Van Ganneban. Uh, Strange Ladies. That's Central, Central Works, and uh, that is already opened, and that will be closing um, November the 12th, so you have plenty of time to see that, Strange Ladies. Oh, Rod- don't wait, don't wait. That's right. Radhika Rao is in that, and she's uh, on the show. And I'll plug once again, I think for the, not for the last time, because uh, the next time we're on. Well, yeah, we're going to figure that one out. Oh, yeah, we'll figure that one out. Um, musical Cafe, which is, um, they're doing uh, four mini musicals. Love the Struggle, written by Stacy Cray. The Loving Tree, written by Peter Master. Pickpocket, written by Sandy Catston and Peter Wolf. And Mia, written by Reg Clay. And that will be um, the October the 26th, 27th, 28th. That's a f- Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Those are the only three days at Piano Fight. So go ahead and check that out. Um, Tom, of course, you and I were going to be in Civil War Christmas, but did you have any uh, shows that you wanted to... Plug or that shows you you're looking you forward to see things that you're looking forward to. Yeah, no, I think we just need to plug Civil War Christmas a lot. Exactly, Civil War Christmas, which yeah, will yeah, be at the Town Hall Theater in December. That's right, in December. So, so uh, do you have an opening date? It officially opens on December the second, but it's previewing on November thirtieth and December first. There you go. And Hamlet coming up in the city. That's right, November second. Plug yours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Boy, it's coming up. It's coming quick. So we'll be at the Royce Gallery. Uh, the You can get more information at the Arabian Shakespeare Festival dot org. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the producers, and it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, and once I'm out of rehearsal for Civil War, I'll get to uh, to see that. All righty, Tom. I hope you had a lot of. Fun. I hope you had some fun. You were a bit quiet, but you know, hope you you know we enjoyed having you. Good. Thank you, Rich. I enjoyed being here. Fantastic. And now let me give you my blurb. You can find the Yay on the Apple Podcast app on all iPhones and iPads. You can also find the Yay on iTunes. Just click on iTunes, click on the store. Don't worry, you won't be buying anything. Use the search engine on the upper left-hand side and search for the Yay. You can find us. For Android users, download the SoundCloud app and search for the Yay. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise or you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Facebook and we will take it from there. And we've got to find a better sign-off. We are out. <laughs>